Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On the podcast this week, we bring you a conversation that we first released a few years ago. John Wilsey, who's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, joins Acton's Mark Vandermoss to talk about the legacy of Alexis de Tocqueville. Tocqueville was a French political scientist and historian in the 19th century, and his work continues to help us understand the role of different institutions and civil society in America. If you like this episode, help us bring more attention to the podcast by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. Well, I am pleased today to be joined uh, here in the Acton Institute studios by Dr. John Wilsey. Uh, Dr. Wilsey is from uh, Texas. We always love having Texans in uh, in the building. He's an assistant professor of history and apologetics at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. And he is here today as a, a part of our Acton Lecture Series, kicking off our Acton Lecture Series uh, for the fall of 2016. And first of all, Dr. Wilsey, welcome. Uh, so glad to have you here uh, in Michigan. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. You get to experience just a touch, not not the full-on blast of fall, but a touch of a northern fall, which is really the reason to, to live up well, north da- here. Well, down in Houston, this is a full blast of winter. It's what, <laughs> 65 outside. So. Yeah, I know. It's you, you've, you've bundled up in your winter coat and, <laughs> and all ready to go. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about... Um, Alexis de Tocqueville, and I, I, want, I want to note right off the bat that you refer to Alexis de Tocqueville. I've always heard it as Alexis. You refer to Alexis de Tocqueville as Alexi, right? Which is the the French, right? The proper French pronunciation. So it's actually more correct, the right way to do it. Uh, that's what they tell me. I'm just going to give you credit for that. I mean, I wasn't born in France, so. <laughs> but you you uh, have written uh, about uh, de Tocqueville and talked about him right. a lot, and. Uh, Tocqueville is an interesting character, an important character in American history. Uh, he's he's viewed as probably the most incisive uh, critic or or observer of American exactly. society and politics, at least in his time of the 1800s. Talk a little bit about who Tocqueville was and what led him to America. Yeah, sure. So Tocqueville is born in 1805. He is born into a, an ancient aristocratic family. Um on his father's side, his father's family can trace their roots back to uh, the Battle of Hastings, 1066, and uh, they were all very proud of that. He had a very keen awareness of his aristocratic lineage, and um, uh, ironically enough, even though he he wrote a lot about um, the fading of the of hereditary title and hereditary privilege, he um, was a I want to say proud because that makes him sound a little bit detached, um, a little haughty, because he, he really wasn't like that. But he had a very strong awareness of his uh, aristocratic heritage and lineage. Um, but he's born in 1805. He's born um, right around the time of the of uh, Napoleon's mobilization against the, the Prussians at Austerlitz. Um, so he's he's born right in the at the height of Napoleon's power, and. Um, his, he dies in 1859, just a few years after the overthrow of Louis Philippe and the Revolution of 1848. Um, his family suffered quite a bit in the Reign of Terror um, that, of course, took the lives of tens of thousands of uh, French aristocrats. His, uh, his great-grandfather on his mother's side uh, went to the guillotine. Um, his aunt, um, that person's daughter, went to the guillotine. Several other family members went to the guillotine. Um, 
and his own father and mother were imprisoned and were scheduled for execution, and they were rescued after Robespierre himself was executed. Um, but they they would have been they would have been sent to the guillotine as well. And had they been sent to the guillotine, and he would never have been born. Yes. Um, so um, that, that does that does follow. <laughs> I think. Yeah. <laughs> so he um, his mother was shattered by that experience, as you can imagine. Um, never the same after that. Um, but that's that's always sort of a part of his of his you know f- family memory as well. Part of their part of their. Uh, family, you know, tradition as well as the experience they had in the revolution and the reign of terror. Um, but he's also uh, someone who serves um, in the restoration monarchy of the Bourbons, Charles X, uh, who was installed as king after uh, after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815. Uh, he serves under the uh, under Charles X until 1830 in the July Revolution of 1830. Um, Louis Philippe comes into the throne. He he takes Charles's place and makes everybody swear an oath of loyalty. And of course he takes the oath, but uh, he's reluctant to do so. His family are, are their allies of the Bourbons. They're sympathizers with the Bourbons and the July revolution. And so he's looking for an opportunity to leave France. And so he takes the opportunity to go study prisons in America to do that. And he takes Gustave de Beaumont and they are appointed official commissioners by the Ministry of the Interior, and they leave and to go to America in April of 1831. So his initial trip to America was actually a, a, sort of a government-funded That's expedition. Right. It's a government-sponsored expedition. It's The government didn't fund it. Oh. Uh, they had to come on their own nickel. I, well, but, they uh, had their own nickel, I'm sure. They did, and they were able to pay for their outstanding debts with the prize money that they won. They they produced a, an award-winning book on the prisons in America, and it came with a cash prize, and they were able to pay their outstanding debts for their travel. So their their travel ended up being funded by a prize they won, um, which is really interesting that they produced this really admired and respected book on the prisons in America. Both of them are not known for that. Oh, yeah, um, very much so. That, that work, of course, does not survive until our own day. But but Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America and uh, Volumes 1 and 2, 1835 and 1840 is when they come out. And Be- Beaumont writes a, a book of his own as well. He writes a novel called Marie or Slavery in the United States. And it's a it's a um, it's a social critique of racial prejudice in the United States as he observed it, as both of them observed. It. Yes. And James Schlieffer says – he's a Tocqueville scholar. Um, he wrote uh, the Chicago Companion to um, Democracy in America. Uh, he says that those two books are meant to be read as companion works. Democracy in America and, and – And Marie. Marie. Uh, but Marie is not translated into English until 1958, whereas yeah. Tocqueville's work is translated immediately after it's published. And very popular as well. And very, very popular. So – Beaumont's work is not received very well in America because um, Americans receive democracy in America as celebratory of American democracy. You know, you always hear people say, well, the whole idea of American exceptionalism, um, Tocqueville invented that because he's the first person to call America exceptional, which is – there's some truth to that. It's not entirely the whole story, but that's that's true. He does, he does say that – he says – the position of the Americans is therefore quite exceptional. He doesn't mean that America is God's chosen people or anything like that. Be, being Americans, we can take that and run with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, right, right. We, which we do, but um, 
But but yeah, Americans sort of receive Tocqueville's work as celebratory, but Beaumont's is a pretty harsh critique of America. Um, so here in the land of the free, if if you are, you know, if you're black or if you have one drop in thirty, you know, in thirty-two parts, you're black and you're going to be persecuted. And and so Marie is a really it's a really dark book. It's not a it's not a pleasant read. It's not a fun read. Would uh, I, I presume that <clears throat> Beaumont and Tocqueville were in sync in that sort Very of much observation? So. Absolutely, absolutely. And and Tocqueville mentions Beaumont's work in his introduction. And he sort of leaves, um, you know, the social critique to Beaumont. And then Tocqueville takes, you know, the study of American political institutions. Yes, so yeah. they sort of, they sort of, you know, seed to one another different, different realms of, uh, of writing. It's, that's, uh, that's um, very interesting. I, I had not known that before. That, yeah. That it, it almost, it's a shame that the other book, Marie, isn't. More widely known, it would no, it, it's, it's a little more balance. It seems would yeah, be nice. It, it would be good. It's um, it, it, it's there's a there's a edition that's published by Johns Hopkins University Press, which is excellent and very accessible. You can get it on Amazon, but but it's um, what's really sad is that uh, you never see a um, you know, a volume that contains both books side by side. I think that would be a a good thing to do. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you you think about the time that. Tocqueville and Beaumont were here in mm, America, the 1830s. Right. Sure, uh, he's seeing a country that is not—it's—it's it's no longer in its infancy, but it's in its a very vibrant youth. Yes, and bursting with that energy of youth. Um, you mentioned in your lecture today uh, here at the uh, Acton Lecture Series that, that he was here in the time of of events like the Trail of Tears, yes. uh, Nat Turner's uh, yes. slave revolt, uh, right, right. the nullification crisis, and also right. the Great Awakening. So That's right. some bad things, some good things, um, and mm-hmm. he got a real uh, a, a real inside view of uh, American culture at that time. What yes, he did. What were the distinctives of of Tocqueville, uh, that Tocqueville saw in American culture? Mm, that's a great question. Well, some of the distinct distinctives, um, we could sit here and talk about that all day, but I'll, I'll boil it down to um, what one um, decision that they made at the last minute was to go see the frontier. So they take um, they take a steam a steamboat up Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lake Huron, yes, Huron. You're in, sorry, you're in Michigan. I have to correct you. <laughs> Not Pennsylvania. We got to have so. <laughs> we got to have the Great Lakes right here. Right, we got to do that. So, um, but they, yeah, they take a steam a steamship to Michigan. And they proceed all the way to Saginaw um, and come back. And it's a, a two-week excursion through the, the wilderness uh, of, of, you know, past the frontier. And um, the account of that is called, uh, Tocqueville writes it, the, uh, it's called A Fortnight in the Wilderness. And I know that that can be found in George Wilson Pearson's book, Tocqueville in America, which you can also, that's written in 1938 originally, but there are, um, there's an addition um, I forget who publishes it, but there's an edition, a modern edition now that you can get off of Amazon, and you can read the entire description of their trip. It's it's fabulous reading, um, and, and that's Michigan. Uh, Michigan as a state did not enter the union until 1837, so it's pre-statehood for Michigan, still Northwest right. Territories, that's and, right? It's, and it was a wild, open land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And interestingly enough, Beaumont um, incorporates um, the Michigan frontier in his novel Marie. I won't give it away, but um, but but both of them, you know, that was a it made a, a big impression on both of them. Um, probably, I would say, 
Another highlight would be, of course, his his travels through New England. Uh, Boston makes a huge impression on him. Connecticut makes a huge impression on him. The townships. Um, he writes uh, many, many pages about uh, the townships in New England, um, their organization, their relationship to state and federal governments. Um, he writes a lot about the voluntary associations. He writes a lot about patriotism. He writes a lot about patriotism in New England. He writes a lot about the influence of religion in New England. Of course, as you know, as we re- remember that Massachusetts has an established church until 1833. Yes. yes. So um, that's really, really interesting reading. That makes a huge impression on Tocqueville. Probably New England is, you know, probably his favorite, his favorite part of his whole trip. Um, and then, you know, another part that strikes me is um, when he is uh, comparing Ohio with Kentucky on either side of the Ohio River as they're traveling uh, from Philadelphia to Cincinnati uh, on a steamship, um, where he says that on the Kentucky side of the Ohio – um, that the white masters are indolent, they're lazy, they don't have a high view of work. Um, they are pretty much a degraded race, he says, because they have been so negatively impacted by slavery, by leaving all the work to others who are working, you know, and they're not receiving the fruits of their labor. So both races are degraded. That's a, that's an amazing yeah. observation. And I to to view an entire class of people as less than yourself, as not having uh, the image of God, not bearing the image of God in yeah. a way that would require them to, to yeah. be treated with dignity. It, it's, it's not only degrading to them, it's degrading to the one who doesn't. Right. And I want to be careful with that term I just used, degrading, because um, uh, degradation is an is a 18th, 19th century expression to describe um, – from sort of a paternalistic way, a white paternalistic way to describe the condition of African Americans and Native Americans. Yes. So when I say degraded, um, what I mean by that is that the Tocqueville talked about the manners or the mores, the character of the Americans, and it's the mores that inform um, their sense of liberty and their desire to pursue and preserve liberty. Um, and so the morals. The more, excuse me, the mores or the manners uh, are so negatively impacted by slavery as to you're really looking at a whole different country right across the river. And then you go over to Ohio and he says that all his activity, all his bustling, all his movement, um, everyone is engaged in the flourishing of the communities. It is night and day. It's like two, you know, it's, it's two different worlds on either side of the Ohio River. And so he writes about that in, um, Chapter 18 of Volume 1, which is the last chapter, and it's the longest chapter of uh, Volume 1, um, Volume 2 for that matter, and the longest chapter he writes is on is entitled The Three Races in uh, in North America. Did uh, did Tocqueville, and, and I suppose we'd have to throw Beaumont in here too, mm-hmm, did, did sure. they anticipate the Civil War, the conflict that would, oh, that would come very close out, uh, on the heels of his death? That's a great question. Um, because when you, when you read... That's a wonderful question. Um, when you read, especially that chapter, it's very striking because, of course, we know what happens, right? We yeah. we, we know the we story. Have, we have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, we've read the back of the book. Yep. So, um, but of course, they don't know. You know, they they have no idea. And Tocqueville confesses ignorance in terms of what's going to happen um, with the institution of slavery. He can't really see um, a long future for slavery. He thinks that, that slavery 
at some point will be abolished. But how? It could be abolished legally. It could be abolished by race war. Mm -hmm. um, he thinks that slavery is the one thing that could destroy the union completely. And he says that. He thinks it's the only thing that could destroy the union. He, he was um, probably right. <laughs> well, he was right. I mean, slavery does destroy yeah. the union. And he um, – but it's interesting because he sort of has an answer for every conceivable question because he thinks very, very deeply about the issues. But when it comes to race, when it comes to slavery, he doesn't see how um, these you know, deep issues of racial prejudice will ever be resolved. He doesn't, he doesn't have a clue. He confesses ignorance. He thinks when he when he thinks about the Native Americans, it's interesting. Uh, sadly, he he see he thinks that they're going to all die off, that they're going to be extinguished as a race. And, it, and it, with what he was seeing at the time, that probably wasn't a, a, an opinion that was far out there. Not really, it, because he writes about his experience in New in New York um, with the uh, with the Iroquois, and he talks about how this you know this once proud tribe. That dominated this entire region are now, you know, reduced to being vagabonds, and he was heartbroken by that. He was also heartbroken by, you know, the Trail of Tears. He talked to Sam Houston before Sam Houston became, you know, the governor of Texas, um, because Sam Houston was a, a good friend of the Indians, the Chickasaws, the Choctaws, and um, and so he got a lot of valuable information for his book uh, from Sam Houston. He had a great deal of um, compassion for for the plight of the Native Americans as they were being moved from their homelands to to Oklahoma. So yeah, he has a lot to say about race, and it's it's it's, a, it's amazing because here he is, a foreigner, um, you know, a visitor, and he has more insight into race race prejudice than most Americans do, if if any that I can think of. It's probably the benefit of being an outsider. An outside view just gives you that opportunity to yeah. to look. But it's it's amazing how uh, the these issues still plague America, yeah. and it's it's it it's tragic. It's yeah. tragic. It is the uh, the original sin of America, the sure. slavery. Um, and I know we're not talking about Beaumont necessarily, but Beaumont in his book Marie. I mean, his entire book is about race prejudice, and you know he he was so struck by it. That that's what he wanted to devote an entire book length treatment on. Um, so it really is. It's it's really one of those things that Americans should read Democracy in America, but they should read Marie in companion with uh, with Tocqueville's work. A lot of a lot of modern Americans. Let's shift gears to yeah, to the twenty first sure, century here. Sure. A lot of modern Americans who know of Tocqueville and know of the uh, the things that he talked about, the mediating institutions, the mm -hmm. vibrant civil society, the right. things that made America strong in the 1830s when mm. he observed it. Mm. There are a lot of people who have a great deal of concern. I, I would admit that I'm among them, mm. that these mm. institutions uh, that Tocqueville saw as giving strength and vigor to this young republic have mm. declined. Mm. Uh, how how did that happen? When did that happen? What what mm. is what has been the process uh, the, by which those institutions have declined. Mm. I think uh, of the 20th century and obviously the introduction of, of uh, the progressive movement and the, mm. the different style of politics and a different understanding of the person really that, that comes along with that. Mm. Is, is it tied up with that? Is there more? Yeah, there's a, there's, I think there's a lot more. I mean, that's a that's real a, broad question. I'm sorry. That's it's a good that's one. Wide, it's a, it's a wide great, open. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, 
we have to, you know, one of the things I wanted to stress in the in the lecture was we have to think historically about this book because it is a historical artifact. Even though it's a work of political science, it's it's still a historical artifact. And so we have to think historically about it. And one of the ways we do that is we we think about how much has changed since since 1831, 1832 when he was here. Uh, a lot has changed. And so, some of it's some of it's good. A lot of it's good. I sit around um, and think that a lot has changed since like 1991. Sure. You know, I, I'm getting old enough that I have oh, yeah. that sort of perspective and it's amazing. Yeah, but, exactly. but from, from I, Tocqueville's you know, time, yeah. Having been born in 1991, I know exactly what you mean. Um. <laughs> I, I feel bad now. <laughs> I feel bad, and you uh, should feel bad for making me feel bad. But go on, go on, please. Uh, but you know, when you think about think about some some of the changes we've had, the Civil War uh, that radically changes, um, you know, the relationship between the federal government and states. It changes the Constitution um, with the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments. Um, you have uh, America going from being a continental power to being a world power in eighteen ninety eight, Spanish American War. You have, of course. You have World War One and the Depression and World War Two, and these are, you know, I'm looking at these things. These are wars and these great crises in America, but but there's more subtle changes as well. Um, something like Reconstruction. Uh, the Reconstruction South is a very complex place. You know, um, the, the the standard narrative is during Reconstruction, um, all the Southerners except for the the Scalawags were of one mind um, concerning. You know the the calamity of the Civil War and what they were going through at the time. Um, I don't know. It's it's always portrayed in a very simplistic way, but Reconstruction is a deeply complex uh, reality that historians are still grappling with. You know, over a hundred years, well over a hundred years later. So you have more subtle movements in in society, in economics, in politics. Um, you have the growth of the power of the presidency as a result of. The Cold War is a result of a lot of things, not just the Cold War. And you can take it back to Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt's the first modern president. He expands the power of the presidency. He sort of locates um, Americans' attention on the presidency and away from the Congress. You have the growth of the power of the Supreme Court in the post-World War II era, especially since uh, Brown versus Board in 1954. Um, all these things, um, I would say, draw a great deal of attention to the national government. And we are accustomed to looking to the national government to solve our problems. So we we have we make statements like, "This is a do nothing Congress." <laughs> yes. And what we want is we want the Congress to get stuff done. We want them to be doing things all the time. Well, I mean, one of the things that Tocqueville writes about in the 1830s is, you know, the process of getting stuff done takes place through through mediating institutions and voluntary as what he says voluntary so associations so it's not it's not even necessarily something that's a, a governmental process it's something that that at that time could be outside the government in private the most pressing questions are dealt with through local autonomy now he does spend a great deal of time in the first volume describing the the federal government the processes of the federal powers of the federal powers of the states and breaks it down to the legislature, the executive, the judiciary. And it's all very interesting reading. But he has a really high view of the mediating institutions that are coming into prominence in American society as a result of the Second Great Awakening, right? Um, and so he he looks right back straight to the manners of the Americans 
and locates the source of the manners in, in religion. And, you know, it's, he's, from what we know of the Second Great Awakening and its influence in American society, yeah, he's spot on, he's spot on. So, yeah, I mean, and that's another thing. I mean, the, the place of religion in the public square today is, is definitely not where it was in the 1830s. It's changed a lot. There's a lot of reasons for it. A lot of them are good reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we conservatives are often think of it as well. It's all bad, but it's there's a lot of there's a lot of good things about it too. Yeah. Um, which is speaks to the complexity of, <laughs> of the changes yeah. over time. So yeah. those are things that we have to kind of think about um, when we when we read Tocqueville's work. Um, we have to read it as a work of history as well as a work of political science, and that's it's a challenge to do that. It's 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 taxing to do that. I want to give you a chance to uh, to talk about the books that you've written here, too, because you, you've got a couple of very interesting books. I've got the physical copy here, and I, I have my Kindle edition of your other book. Nice. Um, uh, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. Yeah. Uh, reassessing the History of an Idea. And then the I'm not sure which one came first, One Nation Under God and Evangelical Critique of Christian America. I think yeah. that one was first. Yeah, that one was first. It came out in 2011. It's a, um, it's a treatment of Christian nationalism, Christian America thesis. Uh, I look at um, literature from 1977 to, ni- to 2007, starting with Peter um, Marshall and David Manuel's book, The Light and the Glory. Um, so I look at David Barton and John Eidsmo and um, Mark Belisles and Jerry Falwell and a whole bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big, big party right yeah, there. Yeah, it's a big party. And um, I, I write a history of religious freedom in America, conceptions of the relationship between religion and the state. And also a critique of the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation. And, and, and to be clear on this, as I've been reading through, this is this is the the thesis, not that America has has significant roots in Christianity or or has been influenced by Christianity, right? But that America itself is almost by constitution a Christian nation. That's uh, yeah. That's I mean, what I'm saying in the book is I'm well. I'll say what I'm not saying in the book. Uh, I'm not saying in the book. That America has no Christian heritage, that America has is a purely godless a godless state or something like that. That that's not correct. Um, Christianity has, you know, an enormous influence, particularly the theology of the Puritans. Yes, yes, <laughs> has an enormous um, a bearing on on the founding of America. Uh, certainly, Christianity is the dominant worldview um, in the 18th century. It's assumed by most people. Um, so that, you know, Christianity has an enormous influence. I devoted a whole chapter to Mm -hmm. Christianity's influence on the idea of of freedom in America. Um, but what I want to say in the book is that America was not founded as a Christian nation. It was founded as a nation with religious liberty. Yes. And I mean, my, my critique is, uh, tries to cover historical, philosophical, and theological bases. Um, so after I've looked at a, uh, sort of a survey did my best to be objective um, of the Christian America literature. Um, I try to identify historical, philosophical, and theological themes that appear in them. And then I return later on and say, well, here's, here's my historical, philosophical, theological critique of the, of the idea. So it was a, it was a fun, it was a fun study. I, I did that as part of my PhD work and um, it was, it was a fun book to write. And the next book, the uh, American Exceptionalism book, that came out in 2015. Yeah, I, w- I was going to say, American Exceptionalism, you could write a whole other book on that. <laughs> American yeah. Exceptionalism is one of those concepts that I, I think there's a valid way of understanding mm, it, but it's sure. so often misunderstood. Yeah. 
yeah. and, and taken the the wrong way. And sometimes people believe the wrong thing yeah. and, and and become sort of the ugly American. Talk just yeah, to, just sure. briefly about uh, just briefly, yeah. So so American exceptionalism came out of my study of Christian America. Um, I wanted to write more about American exceptionalism in the Christian America book, but then I thought I'll just write another book about exceptionalism later on. So the exceptionalism book looks at um, how we define the term. Um, the term can mean anything to anybody. Yeah. Well, the uh, definitions are very important when you're talking about this particular topic. I know. Yeah. That. So like Hillary Clinton gave a speech on exceptionalism just a few weeks ago and, and she has a very, um, you know, a very distinctive uh, definition and she developed that in her speech of what American exceptionalism is. But but not everybody agrees. I mean, we can't just use that word and expect that everybody knows what we're talking about. Dick Cheney has a has another view. He wrote a, he and um, his daughter wrote a, a whole book on it too. So they have their nuances. The, the so, shocking the discordance between Hillary Clinton and Dick Cheney on on American. I I, I I just had to throw that in. Well, actually, it's quite. There are a lot of similarities actually, but we won't get into it. But um, but you know. Um, so what I do in the book is I, I try to write a history of the idea of exceptionalism, um, going back to the to the 17th century, um, and also identify uh, some the, some prominent theological themes as they appeared um, in American history since uh, 17th century. Things like um, America being God's chosen nation. Things like um, America having a, a special divine commission to do something in the world, and that that changes, or you know. Given the historical context, that the understanding of what that divine commission is is different at different yes. periods of history. Um, the idea that we occupy a sacred land, that this is a new Canaan, um, and that we can dispose of the land however we want. Um, also, the idea that um, America has a glorious past that we need to recover. Um, mm. So I try to treat that. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a, oh, one other one. I'm sorry, I forgot. One of the other ones, it was uh, America as an innocent nation that um, by virtue of the fact that America does it, it's morally right. Oh, my. Um, and so, yeah, so I traced those uh, theological themes through American history. Um, that was a fun book to write. I can um, imagine. It, it, there's a lot of material there. There's a lot of material there. I, I could have written a lot more. I have been uh, speaking. I should I should let people know who have been speaking with. It's been a long time since I did that. Dr. John Wilsey's with me on Radio Free Acting here. And uh, Dr. Wilsey, again, thanks so much for coming to uh, Grand Rapids, being part of the Acton Lecture Series. And thanks thanks for taking the time to talk with us oh, today. It's been very pleasure. interesting. Yeah. I'm going to make sure there are links to both of your books and uh, and some Tocqueville resources as well in right. the uh, podcast uh, when we post it. And, and again, thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today. Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but I know that we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at actonline at acton.org. I respond to all of the emails and I read all of your feedback. It really matters to me. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, if you have any friends who you think would enjoy listening to Acton Line or learn more about the work that Acton Institute does, please share this podcast with them. You can subscribe to this podcast on the usual directories like iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher, but now we're even on Spotify and YouTube. So don't forget to check us out there. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.